Thanks for joining Sapelo Nerds, a coastal science podcast. I'm your host, Corinne. And I'm your host, Brittany. And we work at the National Estuarine Research Reserve, or NEAR, on Sapelo Island, a Georgia barrier island. Today, we're going to talk to you about something that most people have seen, but few talk about. And no, it's not the Ultima Haha. We're going to break down the erosion problem in coastal Georgia. You had to throw that one in early, huh? Yeah, I couldn't help myself. (laughs) So erosion is the action of surface processes, such as water flow or wind, that remove soil, rock, or dissolved material from a set location. In coastal Georgia, our barrier islands have the distinct appearance of being split in a north-south plain with their uplands connected by marsh. The reason for this appearance is that there really are two sets of barrier islands, each formed during distinctly different geological times. The islands making up the western side of the chain were formed about 35,000 to 40,000 years ago, and those to the east date back only four to 5,000 years. The older islands formed the beaches when the sea level was about six feet above the present level, before the formation of the fourth and last Great Continental Ice Sheet of the Pleistocene Era. About 18,000 years ago, the ice sheets began to melt and the sea level rose rapidly until four to 5,000 years ago when the rate of ascent diminished to four to six inches each century. Along with the rise in sea level, newly formed barrier islands, our Holocene islands, began migrating westward toward the older islands, our Pleistocene islands. The westward migration of these islands occurred and still is occurring as the advancing seas continue to erode the eastern-facing beaches and redeposit the sediments into the marshes behind the islands. Today, sea level continues to rise in this area, but at an increased rate of 12 to 14 inches per century. The accumulation of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere over the past 50 years is elevating the atmospheric temperature and is further melting the ice caps, contributing to the rate of sea level rise. Sea levels are also rising due to thermal expansion, which is where water actually expands as it warms. This increase in the rise of sea level means increased erosion, predominantly across the Atlantic seashore. The prevailing erosion of the eastern beaches of the Barrier Islands is evidence of this trend. What is worse is that many attempts to save developed oceanfront property and restore the retreating beaches since the 80s and 90s through the use of seawalls, jetties, and groins has, instead of stabilizing the beach, often accelerated their loss. That's because the dynamics of the barrier islands are often unaccounted for. These islands are meant to shift to accommodate the changing environment, and with permanent structures like houses and roads, this can't be accomplished. Through the action of prevailing winds, waves, and tidal currents, dynamic changes in the shape and size of barrier islands occur constantly, especially at the ends of the islands, where they come in contact with inlets or narrow bodies of water between the islands. Generally, the southern ends of the islands tend to accrete or build up through deposition, while growth on the northern ends is irregular and often interspersed with erosion. Large reservoirs of sand in the form of shoals often are seen at the mouths of these inlets, resulting from complex interactions between the tidal and longshore currents. These currents and waves pull some of the shoals downward, forming a long skinny tip, while some drift inward towards the upper edge of the islands and just south of the inlets. The frequent incorporation of these inlet shoals to the north gives the Georgia Barrier Islands their characteristic drumstick shape, with the upper ends thicker. Occasionally, a shoal near a barrier island becomes stable enough to support vegetation and acts as a wave shelter to the beach. 
suspended sediments tend to fall out or deposit in the quieter waters between the shoal and the beach, which can eventually form a marsh connecting the newly made beach front to the older shore. Any number of shoals may likewise become attached to an island to create a pattern of old dune ridges interspersed with marsh and lowlands. Such areas are often eroded back by storms only to be reformed over time. With increasing storms in our area, erosion can reshape an island pretty quickly. Two punishing storms in the 1890s, in particular, changed the face of the coast both socially and physically. The evidence can be seen on Asaba Island, an undeveloped barrier island we have spoken about before. It was once home to a small community of formerly enslaved people, Gullah Geechee farmers and fishermen, who were driven to the mainland by hurricanes in 1896 and 1898. They settled the marshside village of Pinpoint. The 1898 hurricane was so powerful that it blew into place a long, high sand ridge that still exists on Asaba. The landscape was again reshaped by Hurricane Matthew in 2016, whose winds pushed the dunes all the way from Bradley Point on the island's north end to a beach on the south, cutting 40 vertical feet of dune down to 10. Of course, on Asaba, it makes little difference which way the sands shift. Hardly anyone lives there. But elsewhere, the situation is more complicated. Exactly. When housing and development occurs right on the coast, it prevents the reformation of doomed areas and the natural shift that occurs, further compounding erosion's effects. In response, the U.S. Geological Survey, or USGS as it's sometimes called, is conducting a national assessment of coastal change hazards. One component of this research effort, the National Assessment of Shoreline Change Projects, document changes in shoreline position over time with different imagery, including drone and satellite. You can view how the U.S. coast might change near you through the online USGS Coastal Change Hazards portal, which we'll link in our show notes. Using hard armoring techniques such as bulkheads, seawalls, and revetments places residents between sea level rise and a hard place. Newly published research from the University of Georgia's Institute for Resilient Infrastructure Systems, or IRIS, sheds light on the practice of building hard armoring structures along estuarine shorelines. While the negative ecological and economic consequences of shoreline armoring have garnered significant attention, the study provides new data on the extent of hard armoring and the reasons individual landowners turn to hard armoring. And like we've said before, private protection can hurt the public good. If you take a naturally sloping coastline and you bulkhead it, the wetlands tend to die. When you put a seawall on a beach, you often lose the sand below it. Understanding why homeowners would choose these hard armoring techniques, knowing this instead of soft methods like living shorelines, is a key part of the study. The researchers found that there were several factors that strongly predicted when shoreline armoring would be used, particularly the slope of the shoreline and whether or not neighbors had already installed bulkheads or revetments. Once a neighbor installs a seawall, the erosion that takes place on either side of it is tripled, causing your neighbor to now have to build a seawall as well or face a massive land loss. The model researchers used also suggested that as sea level rises and communities along the shoreline grow, shoreline hard armoring may increase and further impede salt marsh migration under sea level rise. Living shorelines, which are stabilized marsh banks made out of natural materials such as oyster shells and native plants, may offer a better place for a refuge for salt marsh squeeze between sea level rise and human development, while still offering people and property the protection from erosion. 
Yeah, so in support of these soft armoring techniques, don't give in to peer pressure. You get it, right? Like peer? Yes. Yes, we get it. No? Okay. (laughs) Well, it's not just salt water where bulkheads cause issues with continued erosion. We have a guest with us today who works with Sox Erosion Solutions, a company dedicated to designing bioengineered living shoreline systems to meet a variety of needs, including pond and bank management. Greg Bell is a regional manager with Sox. Hi, Greg. Thanks for coming into the show today. Hello, Corin and Brittany. Thanks for inviting me. Sox Erosion Solutions is the manufacturer of patented erosion repair and prevention solution that is used to build living shorelines that can be directly vegetated to stabilize eroded embankments. It's heavily anchored in place and can be vegetated with sod or indigenous species of plants. We're based in Boca Raton, Florida. Our systems have been installed in 44 or 50 states along streams, ponds, rivers, tidal creeks, lagoons, and the intracoastal waterway. We work with homeowners, HOAs, property management companies, golf courses, municipalities, county levels of government, and state levels of government. Wow, you cover a lot of area. So what are the top problems you see with erosion in homeowners in coastal areas of the southeast? I see erosion along tidal creeks and longer fetch areas caused by wave action, as well as stormwater runoff rushing down the face of embankments. I also see A lot of failed shoreline hardening solutions, including stone and bulkheads that fail. Stone allows water to erode the dirt behind it from wind-driven wave action and water running off the slope behind the stone. Wooden bulkheads have significant rutting on the earth side where the water runoff comes down the slope and hits the backside of the bulkhead and is pushed downward causing undermining or it pushes the bulkhead forward and shortens the lifespan of that bulkhead. Tidal changes cause changes in water height and wave action also can erode an earthen shoreline, not to mention storms that we have seen can cause more severe damage. Homeowners have expressed to me frustration that they still have to pay property taxes on the original lot survey lines, even though they have lost land due to erosion. Can you describe what SOX products do differently than these hard armoring techniques and kind of how erosion control works in general with these? Our dread SOX system is made from a double layer of high-density polyethylene material. It is not biodegradable and won't break down into microplastics. The mesh material is flexible and allows water to ingress and egress and is considered a soft armor solution. We have patented roping channels sewn in on all four sides that we use for anchoring points. There are typically 75 anchors or more per 100 linear feet and two or three rows of anchors. It is available in widths of 6 foot, 12 foot, 18 and 24 foot wide systems and can be stacked as soil lifts or to meet any slope requirements. We sell the system in lengths of 100 and 200 foot lengths, and it can be cut to size for smaller areas of erosion repair. The bottom row of anchors are installed first, separated three feet from each other. The top row is staggered between the bottom row. So you have an anchor every 18 inches. Every other bottom row anchor is attached to the top row anchor as well. Fill materials brought in from an off-site source in most cases along the intracoastal waterways. 
The best film material is a combination of sand, 70% sand and 30% organic materials. Sand drains well, and the organic material retains moisture to promote root structure growth. We push this film material in using water pressure from a trash pump or irrigation system. It dewaters very quickly, which helps create compaction starting at the rounded toe of the system and builds back up the slope of the embankment. The system shapes to the topography of the bank, even where there's a vertical escarpment. Also, our system can be tailored by the installer to the installation site so it can be cut and shaped around pipes, trees, and posts. After the film material has been completely installed and there are no soft spots, the top row of anchors are pounded down subgrade. The system is now ready to be vegetated. You can lay sod directly on the mesh material and the root structure will grow right through that mesh, which provides long-term stabilization. You can also cut into the mesh material and plant indigenous species of saltwater grasses. Again, the root structure provides that long-term stabilization and it blends into the surrounding environment from day one. That sounds like a pretty quick way to repair what is usually a pretty large and long-lasting issue. And your technique seems pretty innovative. But how do you try to convince homeowners to choose soft armoring, especially when they see their neighbors and friends choosing hard armoring techniques, or these hard armoring techniques are pushed to them as the only solution? Oh, I have many pictures of failed wooden bulkheads, core logs, riprap, and other third-party products that our systems have been installed to replace. Our systems will last longer or easily maintain, and they're certainly lower in cost than wooden bulkheads. Yeah, visuals tend to work well on people, which, you know, makes podcasting about erosion kind of challenging. Can you tell us a little more about vegetation and how important native plants are to a healthy shoreline? The root structure of native plants grow into the film material and provides long-term stabilization. An additional benefit is that our system helps filter stormwater runoff to remove harmful nutrients from going into the water body. Additionally, the slope of the bank is in combination with the water, being able to ingress and egress through the mesh material combined to provide wave dissipation. Hardened vertical structures retransmit wave action back out into the water body that can cause erosion elsewhere. Those are great points, and native plants can also handle extreme weather events since they're adapted to our climate. Since your work involves a lot of hurricane and storm-damaged areas of our coast, How does soft armoring compare to hard armoring when it comes to storms and flooding? Since we combine vegetation with our high-density polyethylene mesh material coupled with anchors and the system is installed with a slope down to the water's edge, it is resilient to wave action caused by storms since the fill material is contained within our system and anchored in place. However, Mother Nature can always whip up a storm that can cause damage to any shoreline. As we have seen, the intensity and frequency of storms coupled with higher tides do exactly that over the last decade. Storms are becoming more intense and damage more severe due to warmer water temperatures. Our system combines an engineered material and design coupled with vegetation to battle this in a more cost-effective and environmentally focused way. Well, thanks, Greg. It's great to see some companies out there trying to find innovative solutions to problems like erosion and flooding. Hey, Corinne, what did the bulkhead say to the wave after 12 hours? 
I don't know. What? Long tide, no sea. <laughs> you know, it's a good thing we're talking about erosion. It can be pretty damaging. Did you hear what erosion has done to the Great Pyramids? No, what? Well, they're kind of pointless now. <laughs> For more information about any of the topics we covered today, or to submit your question that may be featured in our upcoming episodes, please email us at signer.socials at gmail.com. That's S-I-N-E-R-R dot socials at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to Sapelo Nerds, a coastal science podcast brought to you by the Sapelo Island National Estuarine Research Reserve. Please check back for more episodes released on the 1st and the 15th of each month. And that's the Sapelo Sound. <laughs>